Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. Hello, I'm your host today, Judy Dusick. I'm the executive director of the Providence Heart Institute. Joining me today is Dr. Daryl Wells, a cardiac electrophysiologist with Providence Swedish in Seattle, Washington. Today, we are discussing sudden cardiac arrest, what it is, what the symptoms are, prevention, treatment, and a lot more. Hi, Dr. Wells. It is so good to see you, and we appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Judy. Great to see you as well. Looking forward to the opportunity. Awesome. Okay, well, we're going to start with a little bit of background on you. So if you could, just so our audience uh, knows a little bit about you, can you tell us um, about yourself and your work at Swedish in the field of electrophysiology? Yeah, so I've uh, been practicing electrophysiologist. Uh, many folks might be surprised to know our heart has a wiring system, and I kind of specialize in that. So we are all cardiologists by trade, and we do additional training in this in this field and focus on fast and slow heart rhythms with techniques of pacemakers, defibrillators, ablations, and medis medicines, amongst other things. Um, been here for over 15 years, and, uh, you know, I think we have a full service EP program, um, you know, in the, in the region, or a full service. Yeah, you have a tremendous program. Um, I've been very lucky to know that entire group. Um, just curious, what, what made you choose cardiology? You know, the, for me, cardiology was, it was this, it was the types of situations that people in my life were getting, my parents and their friends and grandparents. I mean, it, it was something that affected all Americans or all global citizens, you know, once you reach a certain age, it wasn't a, a unique, you know, just a certain subset of lifestyle, you know, leads to one thing in, in other fields. And so it was really a, a cross-section of, of the populations affected by heart disease and um, I really, you know, that really resonated with me. I really love that you said that because I feel like um, this this topic in particular has certainly hit home um, and and it has had a lot of press and, and transparency to, to this very serious issue. Um, and it seems like we've definitely learned a lot more. We'll unpack that today. So I think what will be important for the audience is um, Let's start by learning, you know, what sudden cardiac arrest is. So could you could you explain that for us? Yeah, sudden cardiac arrest is when effectively your heart beats so rapidly it doesn't beat at all. And I know it's kind of paradoxical, but if it's beating at 250 or 350 or more beats per minute, it's effectively not perfusing your body parts. And if that goes on for more than a couple seconds, you're going to quickly get uh, lightheaded, faint, pass out, and in some cases pass away. So um, I think what often happens is that it gets confused with a heart attack, which is, which is a, another big problem, but, but quite distinct from sudden cardiac arrest. Um, and I, the terms sometimes get used interchangeably, but they are mechanistically and, and ultimately what, what's happening are, are quite distinct. And you can certainly have one without the other and vice versa. Right. And so 
I mean, obviously we know the heart is very important, right? Sending, sending blood to the rest of our body. So if that's having issues, what actually happens to your body during that? I mean, you, you, you faint, you fall down, all those other things, but what, what else happens in that, in that short time frame? Well, yeah, I mean, effectively, um, when you're in cardiac arrest, I mean, you're effectively, for all intents and purposes, quickly approaching the realm of not living if that's not uh, if that's not fixed, whether it be spontaneously or by an internal or external approach. And so you cannot be in that situation um, for more than five to 10 seconds without losing consciousness, and you can't be in it for more than a couple minutes without really a severe risk of neurologic neurologic injury that may or may not be recoverable. Uh, that's why time is of the essence uh, with cardiac arrest um, in that uh, bystanders can certainly save lives. Uh, AEDs that you see in malls and restaurants and airports can save lives. And obviously something we might talk about today, implanted devices and ICD can, can, has been shown time and time again to save lives in folks that are vulnerable. Right. I, I, I appreciate that you brought up um, the bystander response, because just like with a heart attack, time is, you know, muscle, um, but still nonetheless could be fatal, right, depending on the seriousness of that attack. But in, in car sudden cardiac arrest, that time is even more crucial because it's it's impacting essentially uh, in the same way a heart attack, would, but but more serious in that um but you having that AED, which is, I feel, another area that's really come a long way and bystander CPR. And uh, it seems like at least across the nation, that's been a little bit more prominent of folks willing to step up to do that. And so if there's a message about, you know, bystander CPR, if you don't have an AED or actually activating an AED, what would you say to the audience? Well, I guess the first thing is... Um... You know, obviously, if you see something, the first thing you can do is is get more help and and or call nine one one or delegate somebody to do that. Then, to your exact question, AEDs. The nice thing about them, they've really become essentially autonomous. You just have to place the patches on, and the device is then going to do the work. It's not like mm -hmm. the individual who may or may not have the medical knowledge to. They don't have to make a decision about shocking a patient or not, or as the case may be. The device is going to do it, but certainly taking the step of, of getting the AD and applying the patches uh, that can save lives and, 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 and save meaningful, you know, meaningful recovery for patients that they otherwise wouldn't get if they had to wait till the medics arrive. So just not to be apprehensive, obviously, and not to be scared that you can do something wrong. They really have become something that once they're on, the device is going to do the work uh, and, and the individual shouldn't have to be making a lot of decisions that could make them uh, concerned at the moment. Mm -hmm. So are there symptoms or signs with sudden cardiac arrest that we should be aware of um, earlier? You know, you kind of mentioned, you know, a little maybe fatigue or um, in with with heart attacks, there seems to be a lot of, you know, sort of warning signs, but they kind of can be all over the place. You know, sometimes it could be nausea, it could be back pain. What what sort of symptoms come with a, a sudden cardiac arrest? And and I and I guess like when can it happen? So is happen anytime in your sleep or is it during high activity or if you're just at Starbucks getting coffee? Yeah, I mean, sadly, all those are possible times it could happen. I mean, really, it's uh, it's it's impossible to predict um, when this could happen. And I think we have 
some sense as, as to identify who might be at higher risk. Uh, we certainly know who is at risk. And then there are a cohort of patients that we have no understanding of their risk until it happens. And so those are, they're, they can kind of fall across the spectrum. I think that the symptoms that we at least inquire about in, in individuals would be any preceding sense of uh, obviously lightheadedness that wasn't explained by uh, hydration or other, a sense of very rapid palpitations or just unexplained syncope, fainting. Um, those would be the perhaps signs that you've experienced something along the spectrum but didn't have a complete adverse uh, cardiac catastrophe. With that said, it's, it's a relative minority of patients that have those preceding a cardiac arrest. All some patients have is some risk factors that tell us that they're at risk, um, and then out of the blue it happens. And um, uh, so it, it's, it's worthy to interrogate the symptoms, but, but many times there's not an obvious uh, series of things that led up to it that would say, oh, yes, I think this, was, this is coming. Right, right. Because like you said, it, it can almost be perfectly you know, healthy person, um, or somebody that has well diagnosed comorbidities. Um, so with that, I'll kind of lead into sort of who is vulnerable to sudden cardiac arrest. So in regards to, um, you know, gender or race, ethnicity, is this, is it more prevalent in one or the other and, and why in your experience? Yeah. I mean, in general, um, you know, kind of getting back to the other questions, I mean, heart disease tends to cut across the population um, somewhat indiscriminately. And, uh, you know, historically, men have had more heart disease than women. But I think what we're now learning is that, that women's might just be delayed by a decade, uh, given some hormonal protection that, that wanes then. So really, I don't think, um, you know, demographically, there's necessarily a group that's at higher or lower risk. We do know then we do have some risk factors that show us who's at risk. And the, the most common one used is what's called the ejection fraction. It's the essentially the pumping function of your heart. And that has a, has a fairly numeric value that we know once it declines to a certain level, um, the, uh, the risk of this happening is high enough that empiric strategies are often recommended, i.e., we don't wait for something to happen. We know that the risk of something happening is high enough that we, we do them before something happens, um, what we call primary prevention. Obviously, secondary prevention, when we, we implement a strategy after something has happened, those are also pretty straightforward, but, but we have to hope that that something that happened, cardiac arrest in this case, didn't, you know, didn't lead to a more fatal, uh, a more serious outcome. We get a second chance at it. So um, it's, a, it's a long-winded way of, you know, uh, saying, you know, we know some of the risk factors, but unfortunately, even with the ejection fraction, a large portion of folks that have cardiac arrest don't fit into the rubric as to who we think should have cardiac arrest. So mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of individuals with normal ejection fractions and due to a genetic um, situation that we wouldn't have ever thought to look for. Um, and then there's, you know, plenty of individuals that have intermediate ejection fractions, those that don't fit the cohort that we think absolutely requires these devices, but then they still have an event. So it's, uh, it's um, I think that the patients that we know at risk are in some ways the tip of the iceberg. It's those folks that we don't even know that have the risk are really the, are what's under the water that we, we 
we need to at least educate about what these warning signs and symptoms could be. I could not agree more because I, I really, I mean, I feel like, um, you know, the idea that the heart attack was a men's, you know, sort of disease, it, you know, led to potentially, you know, women being underdiagnosed or just not understanding the symptoms. So I appreciate probably not pigeonholing symptoms and, and uh, to a certain population because honestly, we're, we're complex, you know, uh, human beings. And so it's just always, and I've said this multiple times in, in different episodes, is just being aware of your body, knowing your baseline and just really uh, kind of speaking up and advocating for yourself. So I, 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 so what leads me kind of to my next question, you know, is just that we've seen more about athletes or people who deem to be, to look very healthy that um, suffer from a cardiac arrest. And this has just been widely publicized. And um, is so, so to that point, what you just said is I, anyone is susceptible to the condition until, until something happens. Um, and it may even come at, at, at not even having symptoms prior to that. Would that be correct? Yes, and obviously, you know, this has been a year where, to your point, where there's been some high-profile events starting on January 2nd with Lamar Hamlin for the Buffalo mm-hmm. Bills. That was not an event that we think is replicable, namely, you know, blood trustwell trauma. But it does show you that even in the most physically fit of all physically fit, a poorly timed impulse to the chest, in that case, led to a cardiac arrest. It thankfully had a happy outcome, but, but certainly looked somewhat concerning for a while. Obviously, the other one would be LeBron James's son. You think would have had you know as good a healthcare opportunities as anybody, and yet he shows up for his freshman year basketball team as a cardiac arrest. I don't have the specifics on that one. It, it, it probably was a correctable arrhythmic cause, but in the day, it was still a cardiac arrest that um, um, you know thankfully had a, a positive outcome. But it was pretty clear he needed resuscitation. So I think that is a good segue, uh, really, into the next sort of set of questions I have for you around prevention. Um, so are there screenings or, or tests that certain people should undergo, uh, to see if they may be susceptible to sudden cardiac arrest, um, and potential or potentially who should be taking those tests? If so, um, we don't want to live in fear, but if there's things that, you know, like knowing your numbers is always important, um, you know, your blood pressure and your glucose, all those things, like, um, is there something that, that we can do as, uh, you know, as the patient, if you will, to, to be responsible around this? Yeah, I think a great question. I think it's a little bit easier to answer that if you're, if you're already a, a cardiology patient, for lack of a better term, you know, the classic phrase, know your EF is a mantra that I think makes sense. Knowing what your ejection fraction is and whether that was measured via echo, MRI, nuclear, there's multiple different ways, but I think in educating yourself, what that number means is, and obviously the teamwork with your physicians and, and other care providers, you know, understand what the ramifications of that are. Um, in some sense, that's the easier group. I think what you're asking is, you know, folks who are walking around and otherwise, um, you know, doing as well as they believe they can be. And then they, you know, is there a way to know that they're at risk of these things? And unfortunately, in that case, um, you know, large scale screening with EKGs and echoes in completely you know, relatively asymptomatic populations has not been shown to be cost-effective. It's not like a colonoscopy where we get an echo in everybody at a certain age and stage. Now, maybe someday we will. It's interesting to know a smaller country, uh, somewhat inside Italy, actually screens all of their uh, athlete, uh, young, you know, 
junior high athletes for these types of things. And so we, they know about, but it's a much smaller population and they can deploy a, a, a national strategy to try to um, identify these things. We don't have that in the United States, a much larger country, it's, it's cost prohibitive. I mean, so the answer, you know, and the folks that we don't even know if they have a cardiac disease, it's really, you know, what is your, it's the, it's the bread and butter stuff. It's, um, you know, what's your blood pressure? What's your cholesterol? Are you exercising? Are you uh, staying away from tobacco? I mean, it's the things that um, all of us should probably be doing wherever we are on the spectrum. But if you hit a couple of those flags, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, you know, quickly escalating into a more comprehensive cardiac workout might make a lot of sense. Right. And I suppose I just get, I'm, I'm going to kind of deviate a little bit here, but you know, we've got these fancy new wearables and things that kind of tell us, you know, what our heart rhythm is. Do you find uh, folks maybe coming in or inquiring, maybe it's a worried well kind of thing, but um, with that sort of information? Yeah. I mean, I think these devices have, have certainly revolutionized our field in the detection of arrhythmias and the management thereof. I would remind and caution folks, they tend to be for non-life-threatening arrhythmias. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're life-altering in some ways, atrial fibrillation being the most common arrhythmia in humans. These Apple Watches, Cardias, other types of things are very good at that. But as far as, I mean, the reality is cardiac arrest happens so quickly, you're, you're not going to be able to get a, a wearable to do anything in a timely manner if, in fact, that's what's happening. Um, and so as helpful as they are in, in other areas of, of, of uh, electrophysiology, um, I don't think for cardiac arrest, they are likely to provide a great deal of, uh, you know, benefit before something happens. Or even once it happens, there's no role for them per se. Right. You're past the point of no return at that point. But even if you had, you know, any certain uh, concerns before, again, it's just it's just being self-aware or if you have other things that you're just not feeling well about, probably best to just see your doctor or go to your primary care um, to escalate up from there. Um, how can one, I guess you've talked about this a little bit about the preventative measures, you know, healthy diet, uh, you know, knowing your numbers, you know, uh, I know there's been a lot of talk around mindfulness and sleep, getting rest. Um, what what are I mean comprehensively maybe I've kind of touched on on all of that but what are preventative measures that or do we know of any that may prevent sudden cardiac arrest? Well, I mean you you touched on some that whether or not they have been shown to necessarily um, affect cardiac arrest they certainly affect your overall cardiac and, and general health and so to mm -hmm. your point I, mean, I think we're realizing each every time we look at it. Uh, how important sleep is. And, you know, this idea that, you know, type A folks can get by on four hours of sleep for, you know, weeks, months, years, it just doesn't, it, that's not shown out in practice. Um, you know, most adults need seven to eight hours of, of, of restorative sleep. And that's the second thing is that, um, you know, if, if somebody has untreated sleep apnea, uh, they could be in bed for plenty of time, but if they're, if they're stopping breathing and, and those types of things, uh, repeatedly, they're not getting restorative sleep and they still wake up tired. Um, you know, in some sense, exercise remains the best medicine that we can give ourselves. It's, it's, it's in many ways, uh, um, we could emulate you, Judy. I know how 
good a shape. You've always kept yourself in teaching classes in spite of working very long hours as an executive. But um, exercise remains probably the single biggest thing that we could do at any age, any stage of where we are in life. I think this idea that um, it, it really, you know, even end stage heart failure patients have been shown to benefit from daily exercise. Now, they have to obviously be structured for them as opposed to, you know, what they could maybe have done when they're 18. But exercise in this a little bit from my soapbox is probably the single most important thing that any of us could do if we want to minimize our touch points with the healthcare system and certainly minimize medic or reduce or eliminate medications. And then mindfulness, I mean, I think, you know, we're late in some ways in the West to realizing this, and I know it's not what we're necessarily to talk about, but I've never seen a person's life get worse with uh, an intense program of yoga and meditation and whether or not it's gonna prevent sudden crack arrest I don't know, but I can tell you that there, it's going to help a lot of other attributes in your life, which indirectly could affect sudden cardiac arrest. So, right, right, it's doing everything we can, right? I mean, it's it's reducing the risk, especially. So you know, you you commented on on you know my efforts to exercise, and it's because I'm I'm high risk from a family genetic perspective. I've got family that who have had strokes and cardiac, you know. Uh, arrest themselves in, in a cardiac you know, heart attacks. And it's scary, you know, so I, I know what I have to do. And um, teaching exercise, you know, classes, teaching Zumba uh, was a was a great way for me to de-stress after, you know, a very stressful job, high stress job, um, family, all of that. And, and I mean, that's the thing that kind of kept me going was helping people with their health journey. And I had people of all ages I mean, I've had, you know, I had women that were in their 90s doing Zumba and it was just all about moving, just keeping mm-hmm. them moving. And um, yeah, I asked them what their secret was and that's what their secret was because they didn't look their age. So um, so we can't emphasize that more. I think at the end of the day, what we're, what we're talking about in terms of prevention is just reducing your overall risks, especially if you know that you perhaps have family history um, you know, if you are self-aware of like your stress levels of your work, family, et cetera, uh, pay close attention to those things. Right. Um, so I'd love to get into treatments. Um, you know, we have a lot of research around, um, uh, you know, both prevention, but also when, when the time comes and we have to treat, heart disease and, or, you know, if a patient now has had a serious event, like a sudden cardiac arrest. Um, so if somebody goes into sudden cardiac arrest, what's the first mode of, of treatment and how quickly does this occur and what needs to happen right after the cardiac arrest? Yeah. Circling back to if someone has a cardiac arrest, I mean, time is of the essence. And so we're talking, uh, ideally within minutes, uh, we've been able to restore that patient's circulation. That's most commonly done with external defibrillation if they otherwise didn't have a known heart disease. And so then at that point, um, you know, a whole cascade of things happens and we can kind of investigate why this happened. Um, You know, I mentioned in general, you know, roughly, if you look at folks with weakened heart muscles, you know, roughly three quarters of those are due to blockages, i.e. ischemic heart disease, heart attack types of things. The plumbing of the heart is, is, um, impaired in some way, that still leaves 25% of weakened heart muscles are, are not due to 
um, uh, plumbing issues. And so whether that was anything from a genetic cause, a bad virus, exposure to a toxin of some variety um, over the years, uh, and sometimes we just don't know. And so, um, but then, you know, then there are individuals who have a cardiac arrest and then we bring them in and essentially all their initial testing is negative. Their echo shows their ejection fraction is normal. Often do an angiogram and the, and the arteries to their heart are normal. And then we start looking into those more esoteric causes, uh, genetic causes of cardiac arrest, other arrhythmias. Um, the end game, if you get, have a cardiac arrest, is essentially always to go home with an implantable defibrillator, so a device akin to a pacemaker that is able to diagnose and, and treat that moving forward. But there's a fair amount of workup that goes into that initial evaluation of why someone had a cardiac arrest. So is it crucial for people to know um, where to receive the right care? Obviously, you know, in that moment, you're going to go to the nearest hospital. Um, and at that moment, you, you're not deciding that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess the, the, the thing you hit on really earlier was, was you, you call 911. And I feel like this has always been the point, especially with um, you know, patients experiencing heart attacks, they may not be completely down and then they try to drive, you know, their family tries to drive them. Right. But um, could, could you emphasize really a little bit on like really reacting to this and receiving care is uh, closest, you know, going to be the appropriate, you know, closest uh, emergency room. Um, but, but likely the most important thing is being taken there by, by, by EMS because there are things they can do right on the way um, on the way to the ER. Yeah, I think certainly when, you know, when someone's having their first event, um, erring the side of conservatism and getting the, the for lack of a better, the professionals involved, getting the medics involved, you know, here we are in King County, it's great medics. And I'm sure that's the case across uh, all the areas of Providence, but, um, you, you know, then you at least know, I mean, it's hard enough to, to deal with the emotions of, of driving to the ER when your loved one's in the ambulance. It's, it's, it's amplified if you're actually driving your loved one to the, to the ER while they're having, you know, active medical problems that, you know, in many cases are unaware for you as the driver and certainly the patient, your loved one. And so, yeah, I think to answer your question, you know, unless if you're otherwise feeling good enough to do that, which if you've had a, if you've lost consciousness, if you've had your sense, your heart's racing really fast, you know, initially getting the medics involved uh, is a very prudent uh, starting point. So, so what happens? Like once they get to the hospital, um, are they going straight to the cath lab? Are they going to the OR? What, what happens um, once they get there? Yeah, I think that's a, that's the, that's where the kind of the art comes in because there's the, the patients who, even though cardiac arrest is not the same as a heart attack, having a massive heart attack can lead to cardiac arrest. And so it, it, it might take some time to think about that, but they're, they're not the same, but one can certainly precede the other. Um, and so if you are having an active heart attack that you were aware of or otherwise not, that then if left untreated could lead to a cardiac arrest, in which case the, the first thing one would likely do is go what we call the cardiac catheterization lab, the cath lab, and, and, and assess um, via a catheter procedure in your artery, what the integrity of the, uh, the, the blood supply to the heart is. And that's, that's when you think about a, 
a heart attack that then gets treated with a balloon and a stent. And, and if it's done early enough, um, no long-term damage actually uh, accumulates to the heart and, and folks can go back to having a completely normal uh, ejection fraction. You know, in contradistinction, if someone is known to have a weakened heart muscle and or um, it's obvious that they weren't having a heart attack, if they just um, collapsed at home, for example, with no preceding symptoms, otherwise been doing pretty well, probably going to the cath lab will happen in the first day or two, but I don't think it's going to be the first thing that's going to be done. In that case, you're going to stabilize the patient, obviously, and then just try to get some more non-invasive diagnostic information. Um, most commonly an echocardiogram where you actually see you know, what's the heart's performance and try to get a sense as to why this could have occurred. And, um, so the cath lab is, is, is not going to be the first stop for those types of patients. Right. And then earlier you mentioned, you know, when that's happening, when the event is happening, you know, potential, uh, you know, neuro damage, if, if it's been a long time since the patient's been down, are there tests to, to essentially um, evaluate any kind of neurological damage? Yeah, there are. Um, you know, the challenge is that there can be a, you know, I think we've all been humbled by folks that actually had a prolonged downtime for no fault of their own, just, you know, lack of available defibrillators or medics or whatnot, but a good bystander CPR, mm -hmm. which is still the, the foundation at least until we get a perfusing, uh, you know, someone's heart back to working, can still lead to essentially no neurologic damage. Now, unfortunately, the body can kind of go into a stunning mode where it, that's not obviously the case for maybe several days. And so um, one of the hardest things I think it's hard for humans in general is, is you know, we assume what we're dealing with right now is the way things are going to be. And, and in this this scenario, um, you can have a really scary outcome, maybe a long time down where someone's getting CPR and then, in, you know, then placed on a, a respirator. And it's somewhat hard to assess how things are going. And then a couple days later, uh, if not sooner, they can be removed. And then there's sometimes their memory is a little bit off for a little while, but then ultimately they, they end up recovering fully. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, the testing is kind of done in the end state where we think, unfortunately, someone has had such a downtime that you know, maybe, maybe permanent damage has, but that takes a long time to assess. And I think it's, uh, um, early on, there's really not a lot of neurologic testing that is likely to be uh, valuable longer down the road. If things haven't improved, that could play into it. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the effects of cooling? So we've kind of seen a little bit of that, like, does that during these events, especially during transport, um, coming from the field, um, have you seen that have positive impact of cooling the body's temperature to reduce that damage? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's been a big push. Um, you know, some of that data is, 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 is changing quite quickly as to what the current standard of care is for that. Um, I think there's definitely a, a sense where folks need to be allowed to recover with, with, support and exactly how much they're being cooled. I mean, it's, it's as someone who is kind of participating in the process, but not driving it. I, I do think that, that is, 
you know, relative to 10 or 15 years ago when it seemed like everybody was getting cooled, I think some of that has changed a little bit uh, in terms of the indications for cooling and how long you do it. Right, right. Okay. Um, I think what, what, you know, what we'd like to see obviously is the best, the best scenario of like patients surviving this and, and many do. And so what does life look like after a person has been treated after cardiac arrest or, um, you know, what, what does this look like? And, and obviously it'll be, you know, different depending on, you know, the health and age and a, a lot of other scenarios, but, uh, what do you typically see? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, once someone has a cardiac arrest and they survive it in some ways, and I, I they end up being the safest person in the room because many of them end up getting a defibrillator. So defibrillator is going to protect them henceforth, regardless of what the mechanism was. Now, um, obviously if it was due to a, a blockage, if it was due to a valve problem, those could be fixed. Um, other cases, if it's due to a weakened heart muscle, medications can help fix that. But um, the backstop of a defibrillator essentially makes sure moving forward, at least in their relative to how they were before, that shouldn't happen to them again because the defibrillator is going to recognize and treat an event such as this within five to 10 seconds. Certainly a uh, bordering when you might get faint, but, but long, but no risk of anything beyond that. I mean, not at the point where you're going to have any more serious outcome. Um, I mean, there's no doubt once you have a cardiac arrest, essentially in all cases, um, I mean, you're going to have to probably have something managed by a cardiologist in perpetuity. And whether that be, um, your risk factors for ischemic heart disease. Um, you had a heart attack or some blockages and how do we at least make sure those don't progress and maybe regress. And so that's gonna require ongoing medical and other interventions. Um, if your heart muscles just weak uh, for genetic or other exposures, um, you're gonna be on medicines most likely and uh, you know, need the services of a cardiologist in that regard. So, um, you know, but there are some folks that have, you know, a genetic cause where, you know, I really do say like you're, even if we don't figure out the cause, I mean, essentially you're protected as best anybody can be. Now the goal would be to figure out those rare genetic causes. Is there anybody else in the family at risk? And so we spend a lot of time, you know, frankly, um, spend more time with families because, you know, once the device is in, in some sense, their risk of setting cardiac arrest has, has gone to zero. It's making sure that because they had a near miss that, you know, could have had a worse outcome, making sure that nobody else in the family that perhaps has the same genes, you know. And so I think genetics is really playing a much larger role um, in how we think about cardiac arrest in certain cohorts of patients. Um, you know, 15 years ago, it was sometimes tough to get these things covered by insurance. And now there's a really, they're well validated, all insurance. So um, if you're in that small minority that's had a cardiac arrest, we don't really have a good sense as to why genetic testing in you and then perhaps in your family members, you know, could also save lives. Right. Can you um, just for the audience describe what uh, an intracardiac defibrillator is? So what its purpose is once it's implanted? And uh, I think that's really important. Yeah. So a, an implantable defibrillator is, is a pacemaker like device for it, it, the implant technique and the way it looks is just like a pacemaker. It's got a lead that goes in the heart. Essentially, the lead is like a piece of spaghetti that's going to be attached in the heart, and then the other end is attached to the device that sits under the collarbone. 
Um, those two components then are essentially looking at every heartbeat and in real time assessing is, is this, has this progressed into a dangerous arrhythmia? If it has, the device within seconds is going to work to get you out of it. What they're obviously known for is shocking the heart. What they can do as a way to even minimize the shock is pace your heart even faster. I know it's counterintuitive, but in a controlled environment, if your heart's beating at 240 beats a minute and you pace it at 260 beats a minute, you can actually stop the arrhythmia. So these devices are going to do a lot in a very short period of time. And um, so I think from a life-saving standpoint, these devices and their power has been shown time and time again for really extending life. Um, you know, the curves of, you know, who lives and who doesn't diverge pretty quickly based on who has defibrillators and not. I mean, the challenge of the defibrillators is in many cases, they really don't, they don't make you feel any different. And some cases we wish they did. And that's where medicines come in. But I mean, a defibrillator is a essential part of some patients overall plan of care. And without it, um, they're going to have a very risky outcome moving forward. Now, the reality is, and most folks want to know, I mean, these devices, they don't have to, if they give you one shock in 10 years or 20 years, you probably got your money's worth out. These are not events that we think are, are going to occur, you know, in many cases, very frequently. The challenge is we don't know when they're going to occur. And if you have a device and you're protected, you likely, you know, kind of make it through that. No problem. And if you don't, that's where, you know, we could, you know, we could lose somebody that otherwise we, we, we had a better outcome for. So um, it, it, we really shouldn't be getting shocks very frequently from devices. Um, but if they do give you a shock, it likely saves your life. And I think it's important to call out that, you know, getting the defibrillator is, is not necessarily like the cure-all, right? It's all those other things we talked about earlier, the lifestyle modification, the exercise, you know, the diet, the just keeping up with your overall health, like in addition to this, right? It's, um, I think sometimes we get, you know, probably a little, little fascinated with the technology, but it, right. it's, it's, it's in addition to all those things. Would you agree? hundred percent. Yeah. And I think, you know, very stereotypical. I think we often want to do a procedure to replace medicines, for example, and that's just not the way it works. They're done together. You kind of, you need them both uh, to really optimize your long-term health. But I do think your point's a very good one. Um, you know, having a defibrillator does not need to be a, a scenario where you have to stop living life. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have patients that are doing essentially the same things that they did before. Uh, hopefully, they're sa you know, they're now safer uh, than we otherwise thought they needed to be. But I mean, you can ski with these, you can uh, camp and backpack and hike and run marathons. And um, I mean, there's some individuals that are playing competitive sports. You can't play football or hockey, but you can play basketball. You can play baseball. I mean, these are you know the NCAA allows them. So they. Um, but I think your point's a good one that you certainly can then, you shouldn't stop doing all the other things uh, once you get a defibrillator. You know, we want to, it's a multi-pronged approach. It's, it's yeah. a little bit of medicines, sometimes it's a little bit of medical devices, and it's a little bit of lifestyle stuff. And you got to keep, you can't ever take your eye off any of those three, you know, if you really want to be as optimized for long-term health and well-being as you can. Right. I agree. I've, I've also, because um, I've coordinated these as you know, part of my job before is just, support groups, right, for, for patients that have this, because oh my goodness, I mean, I just, to, to, to suddenly have something shock me in my chest, you know, or just to know that it's there, 
has to have some sort of mental, like, you know, game in your head of, you know, this make this could happen. So, uh, but I have seen really great success where you have patients that support each other who know what they're going through, right? If they, especially if they've gone through a sudden cardiac arrest. So have you had patients that have participated? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's one of the big uh, casualties of COVID, at least in Seattle, we had very robust support groups and those have been, they kind of had a close because they were all in person with COVID and, I, and we were trying to get those back up and running. There is no doubt that there's the, an emotional side to having a device, a life-saving device that it, it in, like I tell, in some sense that, you know, the who needs it and how we do it and doing it, that's, that's the easy part. It's really, how does this then fit into your life? And, 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 and that's as much as we work at the doctor's office, sometimes we don't know the issues that folks, um, you know, experience. They're worried they can't exercise. They're worried they can't drive. They're worried they can't be intimate with their partner. I mean, these kinds of things that are sometimes not going to come up in a, a 15 to 30 minute visit, I think in a support group, when you, you know, you have someone that's had a device five, 10, 15 years, and essentially, hopefully back to the, the, the life they had before without any restrictions, you know, they need to hear that from them. And, um, and so I think, uh, I mean, hopefully as, you know, COVID continues to be in rear mirror, we can reinstitute those in our area that it sounds like maybe you've seen in others as well, because I do think that's the thing that, um, you know, patient to patient is going to be a lot more valuable than clinician to patient, at least on some of the, the day-to-day tactical what's life with a defibrillator like. Right. Um, I'm going to jump to, to also just maybe a little bit more of a provocative angle on this. So earlier you, you mentioned, um, you know, it's a good thing that insurance pays for this therapy uh, once a patient has gone through this. Um, but for patients that don't have insurance, right, or, or when we have sort of these health equity issues, um, you know, what are what are some of the things that you've seen uh in regards to some of the health equity issues after, you know, a patient has a sudden cardiac arrest, what are some of the challenges that we probably should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, the, I think the really cool thing about my job, and I hope everybody's lucky enough to participate in the environment. I mean, really, we, I think we do a pretty good job of taking care of the patients the same, whether they have, you know, tier one, you know, Cadillac insurance or, or, or uninsured, underinsured. Um, the reason for that is obviously, you know, when someone's in the hospital, the cardiac arrest, I hate to use the term catheter, but they are, it's easier. They don't have to, um, you know, come back and forth multiple appointments. I mean, certainly that is, is going to be part of the hospitalization, but, you know, I do think that, you, you know, the reality of devices is that they, you know, they need some type of monitoring. Now, most of that is, is fairly simple and, you know, done periodically at home, but, I mean, there are individuals that, um, you know, unfortunately don't have a reliable home. They don't have a reliable landline or Wi-Fi access where they can have a device checked. And what I say, say to them is that, you know, even though a lot of folks are getting their devices monitored from home, it is still not inferior to just come and have it done, say, twice a year in the clinic instead of four times a year from home. So we can accommodate all those and, 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 and really not letting that be a reason um, why someone doesn't get a device because they can't get it monitored. Um, mm-hmm. but the later, you know, as much as we, we hope individuals are in that scenario where they don't have a reliable home, a reliable connection, that is not going to be a reason why they, 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 they don't need a support network per se to have a defibrillator there. They need some monitoring that can be done in the clinic, 
but at the end of the day, they don't need a, a support person to help them with that. As much as I think having a support person is good in other areas of your life, it's not essential for their ability. Right. I, and I love that you talked about the the home monitoring because that really is just that advancement in our technology is that what folks probably don't know is that there's this, this magical team of device techs and device nurses that are monitoring all of these implants that once we've implanted them and, and they're tracking that, it's like, you know, having somebody just watching over you. And I think that's incredible um, that we can do that. So um, I, I guess, you know, in terms of outlook, you know, what do we see as the next big advancement in, um, in the field of cardiology around sudden cardiac arrest? It sounds like we've got technology, we've, we've, we do have access, you know, but <coughs> some more um, health equity around just the monitoring, but to your point, it shouldn't really create a, a lesser experience in terms of monitoring those patients. If they can come into the clinic, that's still, that's still really good. Um, but what do you, what do you see as sort of the next big thing in this space? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think we have been really unable to find an obvious risk factor beyond ejection fraction in most individuals. And so it's this it's this paradoxical thing where that's the single discriminator we're using, and yet we acknowledge that the vast majority of cardiac arrests occur in individuals that that doesn't actually, they shouldn't have had one based on that. So if you have a low ejection fraction, you're at a much higher risk of cardiac arrest, but that's a relatively small percentage of the overall folks that have a cardiac arrest. So I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, continuing to find, looking for ways to screen at-risk individuals such that we can implement a strategy before an adverse event happens. That's, I think, inarguable. And whether that's more sophisticated testing, whether that's genetics, whether that's clinical trials that look at, you know, different ways of, you know, different risk groups and showing benefit, I think that's part of it. The other half, though, is even if we accept that, you know, the vast majority of um, the, the only risk we know is the low ejection fraction, there's still a very, 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 um, uh, how should I say, the, the penetrance of even that being adhered to correctly, evidence-based wise, you know, you know, big guidelines saying such, is still not anywhere close to being what, what it should be. I mean, it's, um, you know, I would hazard a guess across the country, if we looked at all individuals have an injection fraction of less than 35%, I would guess that less than 50% of them have an ICD, and yet they all have a class one indication, regardless of age, stage, insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, private. I mean, they all, this is one thing that everybody agrees on. And so, you know, actually just getting the word out um, that those at-risk individuals um, also, I think, needs to, we, we have room for improvement there. I couldn't agree more. And, um, so we've touched on a lot today. I and, and I feel like there were topics in here that could be certainly their own their own episode. Um, and so just just to kind of summarize, we've talked about sudden cardiac arrest is, you know, again, it's it's not likely as predictable. Um, the best ways to really prevent it are just to uh, take sort of preventative measures with just lowering our overall risk of having a heart event in general. And then, you know, understanding that if we are ever around somebody or, you know, if it's our family that that uh, at least understanding sort of the, the need for bystander CPR 
or advocating in our communities around AEDs, which I know there's a lot of, you know, philanthropic work that really does that because, you know, it, it's a cost, but it's also a community sort of effort. Um, and then uh, really just that there are, there are life-saving, you know, therapies around this. Um, once the uh, sort of reason behind the event has, has been identified and that ultimately, you know, um, the procedures or therapies that can be done are combined with lifestyle modification and just also just taking care of ourselves is, is just equally important. And then having sort of that support group to validate we don't have to live in fear. Um, we can continue with life and, and we've gotten a second chance and should probably just continue to, to uh, experience life. And then just that, you know, um, in regards to just having more access to this and, and uh, you know, uh, reducing any disparities of really just being able to offer the, the monitoring technology to, to, to all people, but that just, you know, patients even getting the devices is, is a step forward. Um, and then just understanding, you know, the, the potential genetic impact if, if somebody in the family has had it and um, ensuring that uh, we're, we're, we're being mindful of that as well. Um, is there is there anything else that uh, we haven't discussed today that you would want our audience to know? I don't think so. I think you've done a great job, Judy, of, of you know, kind of melding the art and the science and the stuff that patients can do with the, with the things that we need physicians and other healthcare providers to do. And, um, you know, I think from a patient standpoint, um, if you have heart disease, know your ejection fraction. Um, if you don't have heart disease and you have first degree siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles that have passed away suddenly, you know, perhaps uh, an attempt to, uh, or have a defibrillator, obviously even better, trying to understand why that might be, could be, could be valuable in your life. But um, otherwise, you know, cardiac arrest is a, is a small part of heart disease, but it's an important part, obviously, because it, it's kind of a black or white thing. If we, if we have a strategy in place and it's successful, then folks get to keep on going. And, and unfortunately, if we don't, um, that doesn't always go that way. So um, even if we don't expect defibrillators to to be necessary, uh, the vast majority, 99.9% .9 of the time, the 0.1% of the time you need it, it is, it's really important to have it there. So, um, you know, with that, I uh, want to thank you for this opportunity. It was fun to see you again. It's been way too long. And, uh, um, you know, thanks for all the advocacy you do on behalf of our patients. Dr. Wells, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, thank you again for, for being with us and sharing, I think, very just crucial information um, and just for everything you do for, for our patients. And it was great to see you too. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit BostonScientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.